chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. A new beginning. Uh, Genesis, the book, uh, the, the title of this work is Genesis. And Genesis means uh, beginning. It's not just a band name, although a pretty great band. Um, but Genesis is a book of beginnings. It's the beginning of the world. It's the beginning of the human race. It's the beginning of all that we know, but it's also the beginning of a nation. And this nation will begin several chapters from now, but in the meantime, human beings have been created. Uh, there's been a rise. There's been a, uh, what do they call that? There's the rising action in English. There's the climax. Thank you, Phoenix. And then there's the falling action. And so all of that has happened already within Genesis. And so we've seen man created, man's rebelled against God, rejected his command, disobeyed him simply. Uh, God has cursed man, and yet at the same time still wants relationship with him. So he's providing salvation. And then as mankind continues to be more and more corrupt, God decides he's going to wipe the face of the earth clean. He's going to give the earth a bath. He's going to purge it of sin. But the problem is he's going to leave one person that found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Noah. But that person finding grace still has a sinful heart. So we're going to see a very clear picture of that today. Grace is something we don't deserve. And though Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, it's still grace. It's still undeserved favor, undeserved love. And so as we turn in our Bibles to Genesis 9 this morning, we're going to see that that grace was very much undeserved, and it's going to cause a fissure. It's going to cause brokenness in relationships. And so as we begin this morning, I want to remind you that as we finish chapter 8, in verse 20, it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took of every clean animal, of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. That was his response to surviving the fl flood, was this, this, this love, this thankfulness for salvation. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. And he offers of the animals that he could eat or multiply and make more food. He offers these animals, he burns them. There's no possible way of getting what he offered to God back. He's giving it wholeheartedly. You might say whole hog, although that would be very Gentile of me to say. It's not hogs. Those are unclean, uh, but tasty. So he says there in verse 21, the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. And the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Well, that's interesting. He says, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake or destroy every living thing as I have done. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. That reminds me of Genesis chapter 6, where God said, not to find it here, I can't find it, I meant to underline it, in verse 5, oh, thank you, 
says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy. Isn't that the same reason? So he has the same reason to wipe sin from the earth. He says, I'll wipe sin from the face of the earth because man's thoughts and his intentions in his heart are continually wicked. And then you go forward to Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, and it says, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So is the Bible contradicting itself? It says there that God's going to judge the earth because man's heart and his intentions are evil continually. And then it says, I will not destroy, I will not curse. I will, even though man is really essentially the same. So what's the difference between this first mention of this phrase and the second mention? And I would submit to you, there's been a sacrifice. There's been a sacrifice that has gotten involved and because noah has made a sacrifice of an animal that's innocent it has appeased the wrath of god and so god gives more grace and so in chapter 9 we continue where it says god blessed noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth on every bird of the air on all that move on the earth and all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. So we have new relationships mentioned here. Number one, there's a mention of a new relationship with God. Because of the sacrifice, Noah has a new relationship. God says, I, I'm going to bless you instead of curse you. Because of the sacrifice. Now consider that this is Jesus. For us as sinful human beings, without the shed blood of the Lamb of God, we cannot have a righteous relationship with God Himself. And so God's blessing is upon us because of what? One sacrifice is all that made the difference. Number two, there's another relationship. There's a new relationship to animals. Apparently before the flood... Noah and the animals were pretty chummy. He could walk through the woods, and the animals would come up to him and be like Bambi. Everybody's hanging out. It's Shangri-La without all the negative connotations. It's, it's peace and unity and harmony, all the things that the hippies say they're looking for. It, they're, they're, you know, we're not going to eat animals, man. They're all creatures of God. And they're all enjoying the fact that they're all uh, vegans. They're all eating plants. They're all eating grain. But something happens after the flood. Now he says, uh, the animals can be afraid of you uh, because you can eat them. I'm going to give you the right to eat the animals. And there's this innate fear of man built into animals. And you know that because as you go out in the deer woods or the turkey woods, or if you go to the zoo, animals are afraid of you. Now, some of them become more tame, but there is a fear there. And if you move just wrong, they might lash out and bite you. And so um, there's a new animals. They fear you moving forward. But also sustenance has changed. There's a new relationship to sustenance. Now there's a need for 
eating animals. And I don't know if it's because of the atmospheric changes, because of scientifically the, the earth's atmosphere is entirely different, or if it has to do with something else that the Lord will reveal to us later. All I know is he says, hey, rise, kill, and eat, which is the same thing he's going to say to Peter in the book of Acts. He's even going to allow Peter to eat things that have been denied him according to the Mosaic law. In Acts, he says, right, Peter, kill and eat. Peter has this big vision of a quilt, basically a big picnic with all these animals that Peter as a Jew would never be allowed to eat. He says, eat of these freely. Uh, don't call unclean what I have called clean. But he was telling Peter not just what he could eat, but he was telling Peter uh, the Gentiles could be saved. And so all of that to say there's this new relationship to sustenance, but there's also a new relationship to something that you might think is icky, blood. Now, why is that? There's a new relationship to blood. Verse 4, you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, you shall not eat flesh with its blood. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Verse 6 and 7, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. So let's start with the blood. Why is the blood, why, why does it matter if we drain the blood from the meat? You might say, well, that's just part of the law of God. But the problem is, is this right here is pre-Mosaic law. This is not the Ten Commandments. This is not the 613 Commandments. This is a command for all life. Drain the blood from your food. Why? Because the life is in the blood. It's to be something that's held sacred. Blood's going to matter later as it's going to be what God gives us for atonement for our sin. He's going to make us at one with God again through blood being shed to not only cover our sins as in the Old Testament, but actually wash us in the blood of Jesus. And so blood is important. So if you turn with me to Leviticus in chapter 17, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, Leviticus 17. And there in chapter 17, verse 11. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh." Its blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And so not only were they not to eat the blood from animals, but this is later going to be shown that, uh, interestingly enough, Jesus comes on the scene, 
And he says to his disciples, there was a massive multitude that had gathered around him. He was becoming very popular. Then he starts teaching some very difficult things. He says to them, unless you eat my flesh, wait a minute, that's cannibalism, and drink my blood, you will have no part in me. Now, wait a minute, is the Bible contradicting itself? And I would say to you, no, what it's telling us is the only life that we were ever meant to be sustained on is the life and the flesh and the blood of Jesus. No one else. And that goes back to the law. You shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall have no other gods in my presence. And so with that being said, blood is to be held and sanctified, set apart for one use. And that is atonement for our sin. Now here's the problem. It's Halloween almost, right? What do we got on TV? What do we read about? What do we think is awesome? Stinking vampires. Vampires, right? What's the allure? Well, vampires, and whether you say that they're fake or not, there are cults of people that literally get together, they kill animals, and they drink the blood. And I don't think it's funny. I think it's demonic. And it is straight up demonic because it's sin. It's rebellion against God, not the Mosaic law. Again, blood is not to be eaten. Um, and not only that, but it's probably not the greatest for you. And there's all kinds of stuff that's made out of it, and you can probably justify it. But the reality is blood is to be sanctified, set apart. It's sacred to God because the life is in the blood. If someone loses their blood, what happens to their life? It literally drains from them. And so um, back to Genesis. Um, there we go. We have new relationships to people. Their lives are sacred in the eyes of the Lord. So there it says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. If a man is killed, his life shall be required of him by the Lord, and people are to mete out that justice. So this is a biblical take on corporal punishment. This is something that's supposed to happen. And so what's interesting about that is that uh, it's one of the things that a lot of people say, well, that's just barbaric, that's brutal. Well, God doesn't seem to think so. That the wrath of God on unrighteousness means that if you take someone's life, your life will be required of you. Does that mean your sins can't be forgiven? No. But guess what? In societies where capital punishment is meted out in, in very strong ways like this, uh, guess what it does to the murder happenstance? Uh, the numbers go down. Because people don't want to be killed. <laughs> you know, when people co are corporally punished or corporately punished, it, it sends a message that if, if you steal, there's going to be consequences. In, in many countries where Sharia law is in state, not that I'm giving a case for it, but they get some of it right. When someone steals, they cut off your hand. So you can never steal again. Well, maybe once. You know. <laughs> but... That being said, I don't think they're going to do it again because they're going to need that hand. And all that to say that uh, the Bible actually teaches that capital punishment should, should be in state in a godly society. And in Romans chapter 13, the whole chapter is about uh, relationships. But in Romans 13 verse 1, it says this about government. 
It says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, this is a great verse until your guy doesn't get voted in. But it's still true. God picks. He raises up, and he brings down leaders. And he uses them for his purpose. If you don't believe that, study the Old Testament. Look at guys like King Cyrus, who was an ungodly man, and yet God says, 600 or two to 600 years in advance, he says, I'm going to raise up a king and he calls him by name, King Cyrus, and I'll use him to send my people from captivity back into the land. And that prophecy took place before they went off to captivity. Study it. Another man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, we know him well from the book of Daniel, but he was an ungodly king. And yet when Daniel was taken to captivity, God used him for his purposes. And that king was not able to do one thing that God did not either allow or direct. So all that to say, God sets people in place to be the governor or the king or the president. And we have to trust that he's in control. Mankind is sinful and must have a moral code to be governed by. Sin is what? Romans tells us sin is lawlessness. And when we reject those who are in authority over us, sin goes rampant. So verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark and every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me, you, and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting. So we've seen the word everlasting and perpetual about this covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And so what is a covenant? saw that word a lot, and I don't want to be negligent to define the word. So when you think of a covenant, the, probably the most recent one that you've made or heard of is a covenant marriage. Marriage is a covenant, and it's not a contract. A contract says, I have an obligation to do something. I'm obliged. I have to. Uh, the covenant gives us an opportunity God's not forced to love us. He makes a covenant with Noah. He wants to. That's his motivation. Not I have to, but I want to. And I get to. Uh, a contract is impersonal. It involves something I have or something that I do. A covenant is personal. 
It involves all that I am. I'm giving my time, energy, and resources into fulfilling this thing that I have obliged myself to that I want to do. Uh, A contract is conditional. If you do your part, then I will do my part. A covenant says this. It's unconditional. I will do my part whether you do yours or not. God does his part whether or not you're willing to do yours. A contract has leverage. I look out for my own best interest. We go into contracts to make sure that we're yoking ourselves to get. If you go to buy a house, you make a contract so that they can't go sell the house to somebody else. They have to sell it to you as long as you meet your end of the bargain. A covenant is about loyalty. I'm looking out for your best interest. That's what God does when he makes a covenant with us. A contract involves suspicion. I want assurance that you will do your part, and I want something legally so that if you don't, I can have retribution. I can get back at you. A covenant involves trust. Trust. I will certainly do my part. I will. Um, A contract is for business. What will it take to get what I want done? A covenant is relationship. I'll do whatever it takes, no matter the cost, no matter the, the ability. A contract involves compromise. I'll meet you halfway. A covenant involves sacrifice. I will give 100% whether you do or not. A contract is temporary. Once all stipulations have been met, the contract is over. A covenant is permanent. I will continue to do this as long as I draw breath. Sound familiar? As long as you both shall live. That's the idea. So God has made a covenant. And I don't know about you guys, but the covenant sounds way better than the contract. God is not contracted to love you. God has not contracted to save you. God is a covenant. And when he makes his covenant, he means it. Because God can't lie. There's another example of a covenant in Genesis chapter 15, if you want to turn a couple pages over. We'll get there in a couple weeks, so hopefully I don't do too much. But it's kind of interesting. God promised Abram he was going to give him a son, Isaac. And when he promised him that, he says, I, I will give you a son. And Abram was like, how's that, you know, how's that going to happen? So after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, what's the sign that you're going to give me to prove that you're going to give me this? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, look, you've been, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, look, This is something that God had already said to Abram over and over again. He said, look to the heavens and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. He's saying this to a childless man. And he believed in the Lord. Abram said, I believe you. And he accounted it to him for righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. 
So he's reminding him what he's already done in his life. My past faithfulness should prove to you my current ability to fulfill what I say I'm going to do. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me three-year-old heifer. That's a cow for you non-farmers. A three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two. Cut them in half. Kind of barbaric, right? He cut them down the middle, and he placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So I have a picture for you of what this grotesque scene would look like. So the question becomes, why are they doing that? There's Abram fighting off the birds, uh, the dirty birds that will come to be eating the meat. So he says, I want you to cut these animals in half. Well, in Abram's culture, to make a covenant, you would destroy animals. You'd cut them in half. They would walk through them together. And when they walked through them, they would say, I agree to do this thing. And if I don't fulfill my obligation, then may I be like these animals. May I be cut in half. Now, to me, this sounds more like a contract if you want to mince words. But the point is, God's going to make this covenant with Abram. And why do I say that? Because at the end of the chapter, after he spent all day keeping the birds away from this sacrifice, Abram falls into a deep sleep. And do you know who walks between those animals? God. It says that he goes through with an incense pot and a fire torch. They pass between them. And if you read it, if you've ever read this chapter, you might go, what the heck is going on? Well, Abram's promising, excuse me, God's promising to Abram, I'm going to give you a son. He's already told him, I've been faithful in the past. I'll be faithful to what I said now. But now he's saying, if I don't, I'm going to pass through these animals, and if I don't fulfill my obligation, may I be like these animals? May I be slaughtered for that? God made a promise to Abram. Abram didn't have to do anything to, to obtain that promise except believe. That was it. How do I obtain the promises of God? How do I believe the covenant? How do I obtain the covenant and walk in his promises? Simply believe. That's it. And so back to Noah, and I think I skipped over some thoughts inside of this. Um, number one, let's look at the fact that he says here in chapter 9, messed up my slides a little bit, left some information out. That's okay. Verse 9, he says, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you, a perpetual covenant for generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud. Now, you bow season hunters, when you get done going out there in the deer woods, you actually see your deer, you actually hit a deer, and your arrows have been spent, you've gotten your target, and then you've gone back to the house. What do you do with your bow? I hang mine in the garage. I hang it up to prove that I'm done using it. I, I, I put it away. So that bow is not just a beautiful picture of, hey, here's what happens when light passes between water droplets. It's shaped like that on purpose. It is a war bow. And yes, it's beautiful, but God has already spent his arrows in judging mankind and cleansing the earth of sin. 
So after the judgment, after the sacrifice, God is pleased with this, the aroma of the sacrifice. He hangs up his bow and he says, I've hit my mark, but I will no longer use this bow to judge. Instead, it being hung up in the clouds will be a picture and a reminder continually, perpetually, eternally. Think about it. We see this rainbow after God judges the world. We see this rainbow right now. If it was raining outside and the sun was out, we would see it. But remember, we, just a few months ago, we're studying your revelation. What's surrounding the throne? Light. Spectrums of light. He describes it with the colors of stones, but it's rainbow. It's Roy G. Biv hanging up there in the clouds. It's, it's what heaven's going to have in it. What do we do with the bow? God says, I'm never going to flood the, the earth again. And the sign of that, I'm never going to judge, never going to wipe man's man from the face of the earth with, with water again. And some of us go, praise the Lord when we see a rainbow. And some of us go, heck with you, God, I'm going to do my own way. And then the symbol of pride becomes what? A rainbow. And they're going, you said you wouldn't judge us. Right? I mean, it's true, right? I mean, that, that's... W w the world doesn't see it that way, but, but that's what they're saying. And they may not even see it that way because Romans 1 says that man decides that he's going to sin. He's going to say, heck with you, God, I'm going to do my own thing. And then it says that God's going to give them over to a debased mind. And they will, they'll serve their own flesh. They'll become enslaved to their own sin. And then God's judges, judgment's going to be meted out on them. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for us that our sin will be exposed so that we can walk in the newness, so that we can walk in thankfulness. So all of that to say, after the war bow was hung up and the arrows have been spent, God says, I'm going to make a covenant. I'm never going to destroy the earth again with water. And so verse 18, we know that Noah is a preacher of righteousness. It says, the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. You might remember that as the Israelites in the future are going to inherit the land of the Canaanites. And then these three were the sons of Noah. And from these, the whole earth was populated. Verse 20, Noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard. And the first thing he did is he drank of the wine and was drunk. He became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, they laid it on their shoulders, they went backward and covered the nakedness of their father, and their father, excuse me, their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine. He knew what his younger son had done to him. And then he said, cursed be Canaan. Why did he say that? Because Canaan, or Ham, his, Canaan's father, walked into the tent, saw his dad's nakedness, and laughed and told his brothers, <laughs> dad's laying in the tent naked. He's a fool. So, 
you think, well, that's no big deal. But the brothers, for some reason, had this like, wait a minute, our dad's naked and we need to go take care of that. I mean, yeah, he's foolish, but love covers a multitude of sins, right? Brotherly kindness. But he's, so Noah wakes up. And by the way, in my BC days, I drank more than I'm willing to admit and every time, by God's grace, God allowed me to remember every foolish thing I said, every foolish action. And I think Noah woke up, and God dealt with him, and he said, here's what you did. But Noah wakes up, and he's angry with his son, recognizing that he was mocked by his son. And he says, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brethren. So he's going to be a, a servant to Japheth and Shem. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So Ham's going to be the servant of Canaan, or, or excuse me, of Shem. But then may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Interesting, Noah lived longer um, than Adam did. So Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and yet God was still dealing with his sin. Noah, the first thing he grows is a vineyard, and he gets drunk on it. So in Ephesians chapter 5, I want to read with you, because here's a man who had a lifestyle of worship that actually appeased God and in the very next portion of the story, he gets drunk and he curses his family. Ephesians 5, Paul encourages the Ephesians. He says, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an aroma, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. Now, had Noah done this? He was imitating God. He provided a way of salvation. He obeyed God. He believed God. He even offered up sacrifice that was sweet-smelling before the Lord. But then he says in verse 3, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks or to be a thankful group. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, covetous person, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. No doubt the wrath of Noah and his curse came upon his son who was disrespectful and disobedient. He says, therefore, don't be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose the unfruitful works of darkness, he says. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, and look at this, think about Noah's state. 
He is in a drunken stupor. And what Paul says here to the Ephesians is, Awake, you who are sleepy. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk wisely or circumspectly, not as fools like Noah, but as wise. Redeem the time because the days are evil. He says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, not the unholy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, being thankful, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another in the fear of God. He says, don't be unwise, don't walk in a drunken stupor, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Think about the words that came out of Noah's mouth when he came out of his drunken state. The first words out of his mouth were cursing. This is a man that used his words to bless God, and yet he wakes up cursing his own children. And no doubt the words that he spoke over them would come to pass. But my point is, is that God's will for us and the way to know God's will is to be filled with his Holy Spirit, to let the spirit of wisdom and of truth flow in us and through us to deal with our own sin. And then we can speak blessing over people, knowing what the will of the Lord is. And look at this, the fruit of being filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 19, is we speak to one another, one another in psalms and hymns. In spiritual songs, we make melody in our hearts, not just outwardly, but in our hearts to the Lord, and we're thankful, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of Jesus. We're making a sweet-smelling sacrifice, an aroma from our lips. And so all that to say that God desires us to be those who bless and do not curse. Now, Ham mocked his father and involved, he, des he deserved to have a little chastisement here, don't get me wrong, but he, he, he grieved his, father's, uh, his father, and Shem and Japheth covered their father. So what's interesting is we start from here, and this is the new beginning of mankind. We have Noah and his family, and the descendants thereof we come from. Uh, Shem is the Shemites, or you ever heard somebody say that that this group of people or that group of people are anti-Semitic? The, the Shemites, that's, that's on purpose. The people of Israel end up coming out from the Shemites. And essentially the 12 trial, tribes of Israel are Shemites. And then there's Ham, who is the father of Canaan. I believe that the writer here points that out because the Canaanites would be the people that would inhabit the land that God would give the Israelites, and they will be judged. They will be cursed. They will be a snare to the Israelites for a long time. They worship other gods, and they're, uh, they're, they're a problem for the Israelites. And every time the Israelites or the Shemites start following the customs of the Hamites, they, they essentially get cursed. Uh, but then there's Japheth, and I believe that these are actually the Gentiles, all the other nations of the world. So the Hamites are destroyed. The Shemites are the people of God, and the, the Bible actually teaches us in John chapter 4 that salvation, John chapter 4 verse 22, salvation is of the Jews. So from this nation, the Shemites, will come the Savior. 
And notice what it says here about the Japhethites at the end of their blessing. It says in verse 27, May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. What's a tent? It's a covering. May he come under the covering of Shem. What's the fruit of Shem? Jesus. The blood of Jesus will cover our sin, will cleanse us of our sins. May we be those who dwell in the benefits of Israel, which is the Messiah. And so may Canaan be Japheth's servant as well. So from this one man come three essentially siblings that will rival against one another and in some ways be a blessing to one another. So my question is that we, as we have these, my clicker's not working, as we have these three people from one, God's desire is to bring humanity all under one banner. And we see today the biggest problem, even in, in our one nation amongst the world, most of the problems are caused by division because of different roles, different desires, different morals, different uh, uh, end goals for society. We have the Hamites, the Shemites, the Japhethites. And all this division causes major problems in a society, in a household, in a nation, and in our world. And the hippies had it right. They were calling for world peace. They had the wrong way to get there. You know, uh, they wanted peace under, I guess, drugs, uh, um, free love. And they had part of that right. There, there was free love. But it wasn't the free love they were looking for. It was under Jesus. And so when our world is so divided, when our world politically, uh, racially, uh, there, there's all these problems, there's all these wars and rumors of wars, and who knows what the next month brings leading up to an election in our own country, right? And yet... To close, I take you to um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10. But you. By the way, all of you are either Hamites, Japhethites, or Shemites. That, that's where we all come from. We're all Noites. Noahites, that's not a word. But, but Jesus, in his ministry, in his salvation he provides... When we come under the banner of Christ, skin color doesn't matter. Political doesn't matter. We could argue about that all day long till, you're, till we're blue in the face. But under Jesus, those who have put their faith and their trust and their hope in Jesus, God will work out the moral issues. God will work out the political issues. Um, but, but all that to say, God will work out the racial issues. My desire is that we would become more of what our, our town looks like more of what our nation looks like. That we should have representatives from different races if those are in our, in our community. But he says, you're, you're no longer your race. You're no longer even your last name. You are a chosen race. That's what Jesus says about you. You are a royal priesthood. You represent God to man and man to God. That's, that's your identity now. You are in Christ. You are a holy nation. Not three nations, not one nation under God, but a holy nation. You are a people for His own possession. He owns you. You're His. 
for this purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Him who called you out of darkness into the light. Once you were not a people. He says of these three nations we just looked at, they're not a people. They'll be divided in themselves. Look at the family of Noah. They were divided. But what he says is, you were once not a people, but now you are God's people, which makes you a people singular. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that's what makes us one. We all come under the banner of Christ. We call, all come under the banner of his shed blood. We all come under the banner of his only salvation. And so that makes us unified. May not make us all the same. God doesn't desire us all to be exactly the same. But he does desire us to be unified under his love. And so, Lord Jesus, um, thank you for Noah. Thank you for his faith. Thank you for his obedience. Thank you for his flaws. Every man, every woman that we know, every leader that we know, every Christian that we know, they are flawed. And it's always a blessing because when they're flawed and they let us down and they're not what we think they should be, it points us to the one who is completely unflawed, the one who is completely sacrificial, the one who has covenanted to love us 100%, even if it kills him, and it did. So Lord Jesus, we give you praise and we thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for shedding your mercy upon us. Thank you for your desire and your willingness still to unify us under the banner of Christ and to bring us together uh, for the kingdom of God when you return. Oh, how I look forward to that, where we could rest in you. But until then, Lord, help us to rest in the fact that you have already accomplished, you've promised, you've proven your faithfulness, and you will be faithful in the future. So in the meantime, Lord, help us to hold on to those truths to believe them and to receive them by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.